is FX Medicine, bringing you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Professor Leslie Braun, Director of Blackmore's Institute and Editor-in-Chief of FX Medicine. The team at FX recognised the importance of having a timely conversation on immunity and the unique opportunity we have to discuss this from different modality perspectives as we've got four fantastic ambassadors. Adrian is our psychologist and his perspectives on the bi-directional relationship between stress and immunity. Damien is a chiropractor and naturopath and his perspectives on the role of the spine, movement and physicality in relation to immunity. Emma bringing in important naturopathic understandings of immunity and herbal medicines and Michelle bringing in perspectives from an integrative GP approach and what drives impaired immune resistance and one of those key nutrients that she goes to. Before we deep dive into some key herbs and nutrients for immune support, let's get back to basics and consider the importance of key foundational concepts such as holistic healthcare, interconnectedness and the naturopathic principles when it comes to immunity. So first I want to talk to Damien. Can you talk us through your thoughts on naturopathic principles and the general role of diet and lifestyle as those foundational elements and how we also might need to give the body just a bit of a nudge during the times of acute illness or significant challenge? Oh, thanks, Leslie. It's such a massive topic. And I'm so grateful to be able to talk on the philosophy of what it is that we're trying to do, because really, at the end of the day, the foundational elements and the foundational principles of what it is that we actually do are underpinned by this philosophy. You know, how do we approach uh, the human body? And, uh, and, and I will draw upon two different philosophies here that kind of dovetail in. So a naturopathic philosophy of nature cures, which I think is so important to remember that we're dealing with nature and the body and they're not you know they're they're not mutually exclusive they work together all of the time forever and a day so that's really important and then the second part or the second philosophy that I love to kind of dovetail into that is the chiropractic philosophy which is that in every single body there is an innate intelligence that gives to it an organization the ability to heal and to grow and to thrive and there's this energy system or organization system that's always striving to repair and to you know maintain homeostasis and balance and I think it's really important that we consider that the foundational things that we can do to improve our health and well-being in particular with this particular topic immunity all revolve around the things we put into our body uh, whether it be food whether it be substances whether it be information the things that we see and the things that we surround ourselves with so it's important to consider that we might want to move on a daily basis you know, regularly, uh, we want to eat really healthy food, we want to drink nice clean water, we want to be thinking clean thoughts and we want to be surrounding <laughs> ourselves with positive, um, let's say vibes or positive emotions, positive people to keep us going and keeping us upbeat. Yeah, look, thanks, Damien. It, it is all interconnected. Absolutely, there's no one silver bullet here, which is actually what I want to talk to Michelle about because as an integrated GP, I know you've got a really strong connection with the whole person philosophy and how it all fits together, which I think is unusual for a GP because I think a lot of people see medicine as very reductionist, which mm. I think is completely the opposite way to how you look at things. So <laughs> can you talk us through that in relation to immunity? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I find immunity such a fascinating topic, you know, for discovering holism and what whole person care is all about because really I see the immune system as almost like a, the roving security system that goes around the body and what's so fascinating about it is it's so bidirectional with the cells of the immune system and how it interrelates to the gut and how it interrelates to the brain and how it interrelates to every single cell of the body. And what's beautiful about whole person care is that when we break it down to various different parts and we look at improving all of these different parts, the beauty when you build it back up again is that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And that's really important to understand as we, we're working towards better immunity is that there's such a profound kind of leap towards well-being once we start having a more positive effect towards whole person care. And what I sort of see sometimes in, in um, I guess, my patient load is this because of the, the marketing and I guess the influences that we have in modern day culture is that people seem to kind of reduce down things, thinking that the gut health is more important than sleep, diet's more important than exercise. And so looking at whole person care, we're bringing everything into the soup 
and and really giving it sort of equal positioning so that we can work together to kind of get a real sense of, of whole person care. I love that idea of putting everything into the soup. It's kind of like <laughs> making a big healthy minestrone Pie. soup or something, <laughs> right. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, everything goes in. Yeah, yeah. And look, I also really like the fact that you said there's no one thing that, you know, really dominates, um, which is why I actually wanted to ask Adrian your view from a psychologist's perspective, because occasionally I hear about people that say, oh, all you need to do is think positive, just have positive people around you. I don't think it's that simple. Um, can you tell us your view on how stress fits into the picture, particularly in relation to immunity? Yeah, I mean, Lizzie, I think if it was as simple as uh, positive thinking, that would be great. We'd just come up with some uh, affirmations that we could say every day and we'd all be healed. But unfortunately, <laughs> yes. uh, that's definitely not the case. So, I mean, and certainly, you know, we know that there's a, a significant relationship, bi-directional relationship between stress and immunity. And um, when I talk about stress, I'm really referring to kind of a person's physical or emotional response to demands or pressures of daily life. So it, it can be related to... Um, environmental or, or social stresses, but also it can be related to physical stresses that might then trigger our stress response in the body. And uh, and what the research shows around stress is that, you know, it really depends, you know, different types of stresses have different effects on the body and different immune enhancing or immune depleting effects on the body. So, you know, stress can be acute, it can be chronic, it can be episodic, and uh, and the severity varies over time. And And while acute stress can actually, some of the research shows that acute stress, acute mild stress can enhance the immune system, it's, it's that chronic stress that often goes on that can have a suppressive effect on our immune system, might actually have a pro-inflammatory uh, effect on the body. And that's something that we really need to consider when we think about stress and its effect on the body. I think it's a really important point because I know there's a whole stream called psychoneuropharmacology, which is really um, looking at, you know, the role of the brain and, and perception of stress and what it does in the body, as well as how you can nudge that into different directions. Um, and I also really like the, the thinking that you had around chronic stress, because I think a lot of people don't realise, and particularly as we've been going through lockdown after lockdown, you know, there's burnout, there, there's long-term stress people are dealing with, which probably has has this impact that people aren't recognising enough on, on their ability to, to mount a great response to whatever challenges around them, including infections. Absolutely. You know, it's the, mm. what's interesting with the research is that the type of stress really does make a, a big difference. And even how we perceive uh, the stress can have a big influence on us too. So if we have a, uh, a what we call, you know, a locus of control, if we have an internal locus of, of control, if we believe that we can control the stress, there are things that we can do to manage the stress, it's not so damaging on our health. But if we have an external locus of control, meaning that uh, we can't control it, that's a, the situation's got to do with external environment and therefore we're helpless in managing it, then that really has significant ramifications on our mental and physical health. Mm, yes, I think there's a lot of people feeling that way at the moment. Um, I know there's, there's somebody who um, who I was hoping to see in Sydney um, within the next few weeks who's living in Perth and we're kind of joking that we don't know when we're going to see each other. And I can only imagine for so many people around the country how difficult it is to make plans yes. and these things are out of your control and, yeah, just just complicates everything. Emma, You've got a great saying, and it is, um, you can't prescribe your way out of a bad diet. I love that. <laughs> so what's our naturopathic understanding of the importance of food and nutrition when it comes to the immune system and, you know, when you're under fire and you've got to really make sure you're bulletproof? Yeah, thanks so much, Leslie. Your immune system, it doesn't act in a silo. It's closely aligned with many body systems, as Michelle mentioned, but particularly the digestive system. You know, we know that over 70% of immune cells reside within the gut and immune cells have increased requirements for nutrients like zinc and vitamin D, vitamin C. But this relies on an individual to not only consume a nutrient-rich diet, but most importantly, to be able to extract the vitamins and the minerals and phytochemicals found in their food. And so many drivers can impact the absorption of nutrients, you know, factors such as stress, you know, uh, enzyme levels, inflammation, dysbiosis. And from that naturopathic perspective, you know, working on those 
underlying factors is crucial for immune health. And as I say to so many of my patients, you really can't supplement your way out of a bad diet. And, you know, a whole food nutrient-dense diet in combination with optimal absorption is one of the best defences we have to preventing and I think to minimising viral infections. Mm. Yes, so important. You know, one of the vitamins you mentioned there is vitamin C, a particular favourite of mine. And a lot of people don't realise that you can lose 100% of the vitamin C content of your food by the way you cook it mm. because vitamin C is so sensitive to, to light and to heat. And I know when I was in practice and people used to tell me, oh, I had lots of veggies and I said, well, how did you prepare them? Oh, I boiled them up in a huge soup and, <laughs> well, you boil <laughs> Well, I don't know how much vitamin C was left in there. Um, so I think that also just understanding how to prepare food is so important. Yeah, and, and it's, it's A, the quality of the food, it's how you prepare it, it's the intention, it's the energetics of what is going on when you're preparing that food. Are you eating that food in a state of stress or are you calm and relaxed? You know, there really is a multitude of factors. But if we think of it a bit like a spider's web and if we just start to make small tweaks from various different angles, the synergy of that can make a huge uh, impact on that nutritional template. I thought it was really interesting when you said also uh, eating when you're stressed or when you're relaxed because we know fight, flight and fright Mm. or, or, or freeze that we're just not getting the blood supply to the gut when we are stressed. And so therefore, I'd imagine our absorption is not going to be as good either. Yeah. I mean, I have many patients come to me and they might be eating a purely organic diet and doing all the right things on paper. But then when we dig down, you know, it's it's the absorption factor that is the missing link. So it's very important to look at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look, I, I, like all of you, I've been asked by a lot of people, what should I be taking right now? And um, what's the best things I should be looking at? So I have been doing a bit of research, um, desktop research through all the medical databases and um, trying to be really systematic about it. And so I've been doing some research into the mechanisms behind the key nutrients and their roles in various aspects of immunity, especially obviously in relation to respiratory viral conditions. And um, ultimately, what I was trying to find was the ideal nutritional components that are going to have multiple mechanisms of action and could also work synergistically and were really safe. So when you think about it, the ideal component should be able to display a bunch of different mechanisms. And ideally, the first one would be to strengthen our first line of defence, so the natural barriers of the nose and throat, lined by epithelial cells, making sure that's nice and strong, moderating our immune response when a virus does enter into the body, that it has a direct antiviral activity of relevance, that it moderates inflammatory responses, and ideally also reduces the tissue damage, which is caused by excessive free radicals, which tend to form through the whole immune response. And then I was thinking about, okay, what about the role of diet? And are there just um, a bunch of nutrients that we know most people are suboptimal because either they're not getting it through their diet or they're cooking cooking it up to the point where there's nothing much left or, or for other reasons? So after quite a few hours of research, I uncovered four absolute heroes um, that meet nearly all of these criteria and no surprises to anyone. They were vitamin C, of course, vitamin D, zinc, and quercetin. And quercetin might be a new one for some people. Michelle, you and I have talked about these before, and I know they were no surprise to you. Can you tell mm. us a bit about them? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm going to start with my top favourite um, that has basically transformed my whole clinical practice, and that is zinc. Um, and I'm equally as great fan with vitamin C, but we'll get to that in a second. So Zinc is just such an important coenzyme. And and I noticed like, you know, I was looking over the weekend at what the latest statistics are in terms of how many people have suboptimal zinc status. And research came in at around 50%. I've seen, um, you know, women of child rearing age, you know, around that late teen, sort of, you know, up until their 40s or so of having up to around 70%, 76% of um, 
women at that age group having a deficiency in zinc. And I've seen it time and time again in clinical practice as well. And also for those that suffer from recurrent infections. So often, you know, people that have uh, sinusitis issues or uh, recurrent tonsillitis, recurrent otitis media, recurrent coughs and colds tend to have a deficiency of zinc because we require so much of it to sustain that immune response. And of course, we don't store zinc in any particular way. So we do need a regular amount of zinc uh, that's taken in. And so as Emma kind of said, you know, if, you, if you're eating when you're stressed, you know, and if you're not secreting enough acid in your stomach, it's very difficult to get that amount of zinc in because you require zinc to form hydrochloric acid and you require hydrochloric acid to absorb zinc. So we've got a vicious cycle there going even from that absorption uh, perspective that Em was talking about before. But zinc is, um, it's, a, it's a super coenzyme. So um, it is an antioxidant. It supports the epithelial lining um, to, to help protect against pathogens even entering into the body. Um, it's antiviral in its own right. I remember, you know, as I first studied nutritional medicine, looking up a, um, a well-known kind of textbook back in my era, um, you know, mentioning zinc being an excellent antiviral, but is rarely used these days. You know, as antibiotics kind of came into fashion, zinc really fell from favour. And it's really, really important for protecting that free radical cytokine storm that we see, particularly for people that have quite significant illness. Um, And then when it reaches into kind of a a whole body effect. Um, So zinc is definitely a favourite. And what I notice about zinc in terms of dosages is like, we'll often look at, you know, if we've got patients that are carrying excessive weight or you know, men that are, you know, a, a big men, muscly men or, or men that are over 100, 150 kilos or whatever, we have to look at the amount of zinc per kilogram per day. Um, and that's really important because I've found that sometimes I've had to supplement, you know, 100 to 150 milligrams of zinc for people that have been under, you know, chronic infections to almost get it up to a certain level. And that's really important to kind of understand. And obviously, you know, when you've got a level of um, zinc, you know, just maintaining that level on a day-to-day basis is really important. Mm-hmm. Zinc is is really synergistic and works quite closely with vitamin C and quercetin in the body. So quercetin, which we'll talk a little bit more about, which is kind of like quite new to, to many of the listeners, is such a fantastic adjunct to, to use with zinc from an immune perspective because quercetin helps zinc to get inside the cells, which is where we kind of need it. Um, so that's a really important factor as well. Zinc is also one of my absolute favourites. Mm. And, uh, and like you say, there's so much suboptimal nutrition when it comes to zinc. I remember reading that after iron deficiency, zinc deficiency was the number two most prevalent mineral deficiency in the world. Um, I love that because (laughs) clinical practice, I see it everywhere. And also if you're iron deficient, which we know is super prevalent, you are really likely to have a zinc deficiency as well. So when you've got one deficiency, you need to start looking for other deficiencies. And and I have to say in, in Western medicine, we're not looking enough for zinc deficiency. And, you know, it's a really, really common problem. The other little um, thing that I love about you can tell that I really love zinc. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. We could talk all day. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get on to vitamin C, but I just want one more thing. Is one of the, the uh, critical things, vitamin A is also probably, you know, if we were going to list it, it would be number five. But um, zinc actually helps to convert beta carotene to vitamin A. And so when you're zinc deficient, even if you're having adequate levels of beta carotene, which come from our yellow and orangey fruits and vegetables, you really need that level of zinc in order to convert it to vitamin A, which is also super important for immunity. So, um, yeah, if I haven't impressed upon you the importance of zinc. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to also talk about vitamin C as well, which is is almost like the, the immune sort of powerhouse nutrient. I mean... There's not much that vitamin C doesn't do. Um, It's just such a vital protector for the prophylaxis of of infection, but also in the treatment phases of viral infections as well. And I was fascinated to read some of the recent um, research on the utilisation of vitamin C in the ICU arena. And, you know, even some of the influences of using vitamin, you know, they tested 
patients in ICU and found that 50 odd percent of them were deficient in vitamin C, even if they were given intravenous um, nutrients. So wow. utilising um, the, I guess, the the way we utilise vitamin C in chronic infections or, or, or acute infections or septicemia or even chronic stress is really important to remember that we're using it up so much. So we, we're, we're needing to replenish it so that we've got a storehouse of it so that we can use it to continue to fight infections and, mm. and as immune protection. Mm. So, you know, Michelle, one of the things that we found in the hospital with vitamin C is a lot of people who are diabetic um, are not having a lot of fruit and mm. so they tended to be low in vitamin C. Mm. Uh, we also know people who smoke cigarettes, cigarette smokers, it increases their demand for vitamin C beyond what you get through your diet. Yeah. Um, and as you rightly say, vitamin C gets flushed through the body pretty quickly. Yeah. So a lot of people think, oh, I'll take one big dose in the morning, but you've actually got to take smaller doses throughout the day to, to really make sure you've got your, you know, you're, you're protected yeah. with vitamin C for as much as possible. Absolutely. Like it's, it's half-life's around six hours. Um, and, and factors like quercetin or alpha-lipoic acid help to recycle vitamin C. So they're natural recyclers of vitamin C, um, which are useful as adjunctive um, nutrients to go alongside it. But um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Vitamin C doesn't have a long half-life, we've got to get it regularly and often and particularly in acute infections, you know, even that kind of sipping on it all day is really useful. On a practical level, you know, looking at the, the I guess the, the more the body is under stress, the more the digestive system can absorb, which is great news. So in acute infections, we can use, you know, doses up to eight grams a day. Um, we've got to obviously work watch for the gastrointestinal effects of that, the gurgling, you know, the loose mm. bowels and all of that kind of other factors that um, many people, you know, are aware of. But when those requirements are, are up, you know, in high fever states or acute infections, you will absorb a lot more vitamin C than you ordinarily would. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think also that what you pointed out was the immune system, that the immune cells draw on vitamin C stores. Mm. So you can imagine that when you're fighting an infection and your immune system's really mounting a strong response, it's going to be just gobbling up that vitamin C. So replenishing yeah. regularly is going to be important. And I think that's this is a concept that's missing from, from Western medicine in many ways. The utilisation of nutrients under either a stress response, as Adrian mentioned, or acute infections or, you know, like we recognise that we need more nutrients in things like pregnancy and lactation, but we don't actually recognise it that we need more nutrients as a general rule in things like acute infections. So, mm. you know, I think it's a really, really important um, factor to understand that the body needs it, it's mounting a defence and can be really helpful at managing the cytokine storm. It can mop up and help transform the inflammatory pathways um, at the end of the infection as well. Now, mm. vitamin D is quite different because we've got zinc, quercetin, vitamin D. They're all antioxidants as well as having a lot of effects that meet that criteria. Mm. Vitamin D is a bit different. Do you want to tell us about that and how it fits in? Well, it's a pro-hormone for one and, you know, we make it in terms of sun exposure. It's remarkable how common vitamin D is deficient. You know, we've got people, you know, working indoors. I think also with, with um, since the lockdowns, and the pandemic, a lot more people not commuting and not even going out for lunch. And so we're, we're getting a lot more inside time. And so we're seeing a lot of vitamin D deficiencies in clinical practice, it, which is quite incredible. It supports both the innate and the endogenous immunity. So it inhabits the inflammatory cytokines, particularly interleukin-6 and interleukin-8 and 12. And it helps the regulatory function of the T cells. So it's really important for that innate immunity uh, and we can see quite a significant impact on immune and susceptibility of infections when we've got a deficiency in vitamin D. And so we have to really look out for that. So adequate sun exposure is obviously a key importance and I just wanted to mention to, um, to some of the clinicians that might be listening is that on the SunSmart app, uh, if you put in your sun type, it will tell you how much sun exposure that you require to get the adequate levels of vitamin D. And so, you know, there's some fantastic little apps that you can give to your patients that can help them to define how much vitamin D they need. 
And I think also for a lot of the the people that are of dark-skinned origin, even you know, Mediterranean, um, Asian, um, Indian, Sri Lankan, African, you know, background, they are commonly, commonly deficient in this country of vitamin D. And um, we really have to look for out for that issue, um, particularly in terms of their immunity, if they're living in a colder climate where their skin is not... Um, I guess, has not evolved <laughs> to live in this type of indoor clothes on, beanies on kind of environment. Mm. Yes. Yes, no, I understand. I've got a daughter. Um, she's a redhead and she she jokes she only needs to go out for two seconds and she's yeah, got her dose. That's right. <laughs> that's right, for sure. Uh, now, the other thing I've been reading about vitamin D is in terms of supplementation, um, there's a few ways of doing it. And people who are suboptimal are going to get the best response to supplementation. But whether it's a daily dose or a, a high dose every now and again, which how do you use vitamin D? How do you prescribe it? Yeah, no, it's a great question, actually. I mean, I think it depends on the patient. Like, we, we know that we can give quite large doses because it does store within the body. So that's a great thing to know. We don't have to get a daily kind of dose. So we've got a storage element within the body, which is really important. So you can give... Um, higher doses that um, that might suit the patient. You know, I've got some patients that just feel like they can't sustain even a, a daily, if you know, twice daily dose. So sometimes we will give fifty thousand international units once a week, or um, even you know, larger amounts once a month. It depends on the patient. And so for nursing home patients or people that. Um, that just don't have access or or agency really, we can give larger doses infrequently to make sure that they've got adequate storage of vitamin D. But on a general rule, it's generally given as a twice daily dose. I'll often suggest to take it with a meal with some level of um, of healthy fat, like an avocado or an egg or some yogurt, just to help with the absorption of vitamin D. Um, and you can access it through things like egg yolks and uh, salmon is quite high in vitamin D. So improving diet can sometimes be beneficial too. Mm. A number of years ago, we did a, a study with cardiac surgery patients at one of the hospitals here in Melbourne. And we used 2,000 international units a day. So one capsule of 1,000 in the morning and one at night. It took about six weeks mm. to really move the dial. So it, it does take time. Yeah. That's what I learned from that study. I think it does take time and often I'll see, um, I can see it for even longer than that, you know. It's taken six months, 12 months for some people. Perhaps maybe they've got a genetic deficiency that, you know, impacts their ability to kind of convert vitamin D or there might be some other factor going on. I also have suspicions in terms of diet quality. If people have got a very, um, I guess, uh, diet that's very low in antioxidants, so very poor diet quality, they may be using up their vitamin D quite a lot. And so they'll often, this is just a clinical observation, tend to have higher need for vitamin D. Um, so I often keep that in mind as well. And obviously things like if they're having recurrent infections, the utilisation of vitamin D to try and keep the body healthy is going to be another factor to, to look at as well. Mm. And I'm guessing you're tracking all of that with blood levels as well. So you yeah. can really titrate the dose for the individual. That's right. That's right. I mean, there's lots of, um, I guess, we don't really know what the ideal dose is. Um, some people say it's over 50. Some people say it's over 75. Some people say it's over 100. And I think, you know, um, interestingly, we used to say it was 75 and some labs are saying, you know, 50. And so we'll often see things lower and lower and lower over time, like being in practice for 20 years, you know, um, the blood levels tend to get, you know, <laughs> less and less. Ferritin's another example, you know, where we, you know, we used to say over 50 or even over 80 was great. And now in some labs it's saying, you know, over 20 is adequate. So we've, I've noticed, you know, over 20, 23 years of clinical practice, that is the case. So I like to aim for around 100. Um, mm. So that I, I absolutely know they've got adequate stores at times of... Um, of infection going into the future so that I can really feel comfortable um, with the level of vitamin D from an immune perspective. And I think vitamin D is one of those really super safe ones anyway. Which... Oh, super safe. Yeah. I think yeah. they had a, a, a clinical mistrial where they were giving 600,000 international units for, <laughs> for months, daily yeah. for months, and um, there was no ill effect. So I'm not suggesting for one minute for <laughs> people to do that, but the, the fact of the matter that... Uh, 
they used really high doses as a mistake and um, it was, yeah, not found to be particularly <laughs> toxic at all. Oh, an accidental um, <laughs> toxicological study. Correct, okay. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, thanks for that. And, you know, there's some fantastic herbs out there as well. I know we've been talking nutrients, but there are certainly some really useful and powerful herbs as well. So, Emma, I, I've no doubt you've been asked a lot about this in your practice. I mean, my favourites are Andrographis, Echinacea, even Pelagonium in this situation, but I'm really keen to hear, you know, what you think of those and and have you been using them? Yes, extensively, although I've got to give a caveat, I do not use um, Andrographis as a liquid herb because my patients cry too much. So that's always <laughs> in a tableted form because it is so very bitter. But it is one of the first herbs that I think of for acute viral infections because if you get the dose right, within three days an upper respiratory tract infection can change, it can shift. And the mechanism of action for Andrographis is it's got many, it's antipyretics, so it'll bring down a fever, anti-inflammatory, antiviral, immune modulating, and it also provides symptomatic relief. So it's got so many different mechanisms. But if you're looking at the research, the main bioactive is the andrographolide component, and it's got this incredible dual action. So firstly, it's been shown to inhibit the viral entry to cells by binding to hemagglutinin and neuraminidase receptors on the cell membrane. So these are the receptors that a virus will bind to. So andrographolide andrographolide can prevent that or reduce that. And then secondly, it reduces viral replication within the cell itself. Mm -hmm. And that's been seen in the literature in regards to influenza A. It is such a useful herb. Um, But yes, I definitely use it in a tableted form. (laughs) Mm, Yeah, I think that's that's the thing with herbs, aren't they? That you know, that they can be incredibly powerful, but compliance can be an issue when they don't taste good. Yeah. And, and look, I always tell my patients when I give them liquid herbs, you know, this is going to taste terrible. You're going to be crying out my name in anger <laughs> each morning, but but they work. And and this is this is what we see. And look, looking at echinacea, I mean, as a herbalist, this has been one of the most well-researched herbs, I think, globally. And the mechanism of action for this is it's immune modulating, anti-inflammatory and anti antiviral, but it really works by increasing the response of natural killer cells and other immune cells, and it blocks the action of some viral protein. So it seems to uh, almost attenuate the response of macrophages to an immune stimulus. And yeah, the research on echinacea is, is just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it's been one of those, it's been around for a very long time. Mm. And, you know, more and more research is coming through to understand it better, you know, incredibly safe as well. Um, and I, I like the fact with echinacea, it's available in lots of different forms. Yes. So uh, liquids and solids. And um, in fact, I know when I used to work in one of the pharmacies, we used to recommend echinacea as a liquid tincture um, mm. because really good liquid tincture can have that local anaesthetic effect as well, which is nice. Yeah, absolutely. It can be quite incredible. And look, you know, looking at the research, a randomised double blind placebo controlled trials, so this was a good one, showed that adults who took 2,400 milligrams of echinacea daily for four months and then they increased the dose to around 4,000 milligrams of echinacea at the first sign of a cold. But they had 59% fewer cold episodes and 26% fewer days with cold symptoms than the people taking the placebo. So echinacea is such a wonderful, wonderful herb and, you know, just its safety profile is fantastic. Mm, mm. I used to find we used to have a lot of people that work particularly in childcare or in schools or, you know, places where there's lots of infection going around using mm. it and, and starting around Easter so that they would become a little bit more bulletproof by the time winter hit. Yeah, I have a lot of um, nurses uh, that that use echinacea, patients of mine. So, yeah, similar demographic in that way. Yeah, like when you know you're going into somewhere where it's just going to be everywhere. <laughs> mm, mm. Uh, look, one of my absolute favourite herbs, which is uh, it's a herb called pelagonium, which I don't think enough people know about. Um, I mean, I love the story of it. It came from um, South Africa. Mm. It was used by a number of the tribes there, you know, way back in the day for, you know, really serious respiratory illnesses like TB. Mm. Um, was brought to the UK, eventually was studied again in Germany, a PhD student, I think in the 1970s, discovered it, had another look at it and 
Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing. Tell, tell me what you know about it. Yeah, I do think it's amazing. And it is a very undervalued herb so far uh, here in Australia. So I'd love to see more clinicians making use of it. I mean, the mechanism of action for pelagonium is it it modulates the immune system. It's antiviral. But the thing that I love the most is that it's really helpful for symptom relief. So when you're looking at the, the research, a 2019 meta-analysis of six randomized controlled trials showed that pelagonium, it not only reduces symptom severity, but also, and this is the part I really love, accelerated recovery, which Look, in the real world, it means that adults get back to work and kids get back to school more quickly. So I find that absolutely fascinating. And, you know, research shows that pelagonium interferes with the viral replication of, um, of yeah, of viruses like influenza A. So, you know, I would absolutely highly encourage any practitioners out there who are qualified in herbal medicine to really start utilising pelagonium more. Mm, I know we've got it on standby here all the time. <laughs> Oh, look, thank you so much for that. Um, look, talking about holism and, you know, we've talked a bit about diet. We've talked a little bit about nutrition, uh, key components, vitamin D, zinc, quercetin, vitamin C, some great herbs, andrographis, echinacea, pelagonium, but we know there's more we can do. So, Damien, I want to throw to you to, to talk us through movement and physical activity and, and how this might affect immune function. Oh, thanks, Leslie. Listening to Michelle and Em, I'll tell you what, what a wealth of knowledge those two are. I said, gosh, I'm, I'm going to be uh, rewinding this podcast and listening to it myself. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Thank you so much for your insights. I think it's really important for us to consider what we're wanting to achieve. You know, when somebody is fighting an infection, what's the body wanting to do? Is the body wanting to, you know, hammer and tongs, work 24-7, take emails, phone calls, answer SMS, text messages, be available all the time, seven days a week, or is it wanting to rest, digest and heal? And, you know, really, it's a bit of a leading, you know, kind of intro for myself here. <laughs> it was, we're wanting to rest, digest and heal. So we're wanting more parasympathetic activity. So we're not wanting to go and smash out a triathlon. We're not going to want to go and do a Ironman event or maybe head on down to the local CrossFit gym and, you know, do a, a wad. We're not doing the workout of the day today. You know, you're not when we're trying to get on top of our immune system. So we've got to kind of work out what the body's trying to do. So in a, a, a state or a time where the body's mounting a response, an immune response, certain hormones are circulating through the body and there's certain states at which the body will do a better job. And listening to Michelle before when she said when the body's in stress and it's a great thing to just to consider that, you know, when the body is in stress and it's fighting an immune um, challenge or it's mounting an immune challenge, it really it's moving in the direction of a parasympathetic approach to management of itself. So you're looking for parasympathetic stimulation. So you're wanting to do easy walks, 30 minutes a day, exposure to the sun, take your sunglasses off for those short periods a day, those short bursts, 30 minutes, just to walk at a pace that kind of you could chat but not sing at. You don't want to be singing. You want to be kind of chatting at. It's a nice little pace. Um, and doing that on a daily basis in the sun, provided it's not raining and, you know, not stormy outside. But there's other things that you can do to bring yourself into parasympathetics, which is very important from a chiropractic perspective and a movement perspective, and that is to lie on a posture pole. Get yourself a foam roller, lie on the posture pole in a crucifix kind of position with your legs out straight, the posture pole running straight down your spine with your arms out stretched to the side and then breathing deeply into your stomach. This has been shown to bring your body back into parasympathetics and this is a really great way to stimulate that rest, digest, heal mechanism that the body wants to get into when it's trying to mount an immune response. I think there's some really you know easy, simple things to be mindful of but really you don't want to burn yourself out. You don't want to uh, create a situation where your body's requiring extra nutrition to repair your muscles because you've gone too hard. You really got to deliver the nutrition to the immune system and you're looking to just move into parasympathetics, resting, sleeping, moving appropriately and uh, give yourself that opportunity to heal as quickly and rapidly as you can. So I think what I heard, Damien, is we're not soldiering on. Mm-hmm. We, we're being no, kind to ourselves. Can't say that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also found it really interesting when you were talking about the roller. Um, so I've started doing yoga, and as a part of every single class, you know, we put the bolster yes. under our back and, and do that similar positioning. I'd yeah. never realised that's what it's doing. Yes, it's a really beautiful 
um, stimulator of the parasympathetic nervous system. It's a great thing. It's something, you know, as a mechanism that we talk about in terms of uh, people who are really highly strung and stressed and they're sitting down to go and eat a meal and they're still thinking about all the work that they haven't done, let alone the conversations that they've had with people that might have upset them through the day. A great thing to do before they sit down to a meal, again, to activate the parasympathetics, which is, again, rest, digest and heal, is to lie on this posture pole or a bolster or uh, something that kind of stretches your thoracic spine out to give yourself that opportunity to take in some deep breaths to really trigger the parasympathetic nervous system. It's such a simple little biomechanical neurological trick that um, that I think more people could actually access and tap into to get a great result from. You know, I'm actually having this funny visual of people having bolsters in their office space and lying down on the floor behind their desks and doing it just to just to chill. Yeah, it's my dream. My dream office sounds amazing, Leslie. I think that'd be really great. <laughs> I think it'd be great. You know, if we can switch ourselves, you know, from that sympathetic dominant state, which so many people are in, and move towards a parasympathetic balanced approach, where at times of the day when you need to be sympathetic, you can be sympathetic, but at times of the day when you need to be parasympathetic, you can move yourself towards parasympathetic. We'll not only get a better rest at night, we'll have better dreams, we'll wake up more refreshed, we'll have that, you know, better uh, REM sleep, which is restorative. Um, you know, there's so many positives and upshots to, uh, to moving towards parasympathetics and movement's a big part of that and opening up your thoracic cage is such a significant component to, to making sure that happens efficiently. You know, one of the things I wonder about with movement, um, like you were talking about walking to the point where you can talk so you're not out of breath but, you, you know, you're walking with a little bit of pace. Yes. When people listen to music as well, do you find that that has an amplifying effect or there hasn't been much research on it? Yeah, I don't know about the research on that, Leslie. That is a great question. But I think that, you, you again, you're kind of going with music that's calming and soothing. Um, now, mm. for, you know, one person calming and soothing, I think we've all seen that TV commercial where there's <laughs> yes. a man with a beard meditating and he's listening to <laughs> punk rock or whatever it is and then there's somebody else listening to Beethoven or, you know, Pan Flutes by the Ocean by Ken Davis. You know, there's, there's all different types of approaches that we'd all use but you're looking to get music that would stimulate your senses to the point that it would calm you and relax you and if that is hard rock heavy metal death metal whatever it is then good for you but I suspect that it's probably something that's probably going to move your brain waves in a in, in a in a direction that's probably a bit more calming and, and soothing to the brain as opposed to something that's a bit more excitatory. Yeah, look, perfect segue to talk to Adrian. Um, Adrian, you've probably got a view on music, but also I'm really keen to talk to you about sleep as well and, and restoration and recovery from that perspective too. So Adrian, what's your suggestions here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, music, I mean, certainly there's research around music and it's a positive effect or potentially positive effect on the immune system and uh, and definitely the type of music uh, does make a difference. And, you know, you've got your relaxing, soothing music, which is, uh, as Damien talked about, kind of putting you into parasympathetic mode. Uh, then you've got music that's pleasurable uh, and engaging, but may not necessarily turn on that parasympathetic response. So it really, uh, music's definitely a uh, Something I'd definitely recommend as they're, as they're engaging in exercise, uh, moderate exercise when they're, they're healing from a, uh, an illness. Um, from a sleep perspective, I mean, sleep's really uh, potentially another stressor uh, or, another, or an activity that's, engaging, that's soothing. So it really depends on, on the quality of sleep. So uh, with, you know, we know that research around insomnia, um, even uh, sleep apnea, uh, if the people are suffering from insomnia or sleep apnea, they have greater levels of inflammation going on. If you measure markers like C-reactive protein, it, it increases that. And concerningly, there's also research showing that inconsistent sleep is associated with high levels of inflammatory biomarkers, and particularly in women. And this is really concerning, obviously, for breastfeeding mums and parents with young children who are, you know, who their sleep is varying significantly from, from night to night. So that's something that people really do need to think about. And uh, we know that acute sleep loss can have a negative impact on the immune response, but it's certainly that chronic uh, sleep problems that uh, is, is really concerning and is associated with lower immune response. It increases our risk of depression and anxiety and other mental health disorders. It increases our risk of suffering from cardiovascular disorders, uh, metabolic conditions and all those various diseases that are linked with, with poor sleep. 
One of the things I'm also wondering about is if you start to find a way to have better sleep, does it actually have an impact on those other things? So, for example, you're talking about poor sleep over time having a detrimental effect on immune function. Are you suggesting that if you can improve your sleep, that'll have a, a beneficial effect there too? Definitely. I mean, if we think about people that aren't sleeping and, and what what will happen during the night for them. So if they're not sleeping, um, they're staying up during their night, they're, they may be stressing about the fact that they're not sleeping. And we know that if you're uh, thinking about a negative event or you're thinking about a stressor, that then triggers our cortisol response. Our, our, it has a significant effect on our sympathetic nervous system. So you've got this, uh, the fact that you're not sleeping, then you've got thinking about the fact that you're not sleeping mm. and that, that then exacerbates it. And then you're staying up during the night and what are you potentially doing? Or maybe you're, you're snacking on high sugary foods. So then mm. that's happening during the night. Uh, and then, you know, all the metabolic responses associated with that and then and potentially weight gain and, and insulin resistance. And then you're waking up in the morning, you're feeling unrefreshed because you're feeling unrefreshed you're not uh, going to go for that walk in the morning or that exercise in the morning. So you're probably becoming more sedentary uh, because you're feeling so tired. And then what do you do? You might use caffeine or stimulants to help you boost your energy during the day. Uh, And then just the fact that you haven't slept means that if there is a stressor, you're going to be more hypersensitive to a stress that occurs during the day. So you're feeling unrefreshed, you're feeling tired, you get told off at work or there's a, a major deadline going on, now you're going to be even more hyperactive or hyper-responsive to that stress that occurs. So definitely the reverse happens and your sleep improves, you're feeling more settled, there's a whole bunch of lifestyle factors that occur, your mindset changes and, and certainly some of the research is indicating that we see a, a change in, in a whole range of different hormones and pro-inflammatory mediators. Wow. So poor sleep has got such a strong cascading effect on so many other factors. And when you put it like that, really, it makes me think about why aren't we talking about sleep a lot more? It's definitely something that we do need to ask about when we're seeing uh, our clients and asking about sleep and 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 how do they manage sleep and what's their sleep hygiene. And I encourage anybody to, uh, if they're working uh, with their clients, to just really understand the importance of sleep, uh, ask about, uh, certainly assess for it. There's plenty of useful uh, checklists and questionnaires that people can quickly give. Um, and, and then really knowing about good sleep hygiene. Because while there is several supplements, nutraceuticals, uh, herbal ingredients that may help improve sleep, ultimately the research shows that it's our behaviours that are the most important. So, you know, cognitive behaviour therapy for insomnia, um, some of our sleep hygiene practices and caffeine intake and what we do before we go to bed and and all those different things uh, are really things that we can recommend to clients. And if they can engage in, in five or six small changes in their sleep hygiene routines or their sleep routines in the evening, they can have a significant cumulative effect and improve their sleep over time. You know, Adrian, I used to have such problems with sleep, still do from time to time, and I found the three things that really helped was, first of all, not taking my multivitamin in the afternoon because all those Mm -hmm. B-group vitamins can really activate. Um, The second one was having a journal on the side of the bed. So if I woke up with, you know, just thoughts going round and round that I felt I had to hold on to to the morning, I could jot them down and go, right, I've let it go, it's there, and they go back to sleep. And the third one was a cool room. Being in a a cooler environment just completely just broke the cycle. It was fantastic. Yeah. it's So simple. It's (laughs) some of those things that that are... You know, it's, it doesn't have to be rocket science. There's not, there's not a, a whole range of magical solutions. There's just some of those simple things that people can do that, uh, and it just really means people just take stock and just kind of question, well, what am I doing that might be impacting on my sleep? And, uh, and you know, what are, th- what are some things I'm doing in the evening? Because it's not just about what you do before sleep. It's also what you do during the day to prepare yourself for sleep. So uh, those are the things we also need to, to really take into consideration. And, and unfortunately with sleep, with many things in life, if you try harder, you do better. But when it comes to sleep, <laughs> if you try hard to fall asleep, you generally do worse. So it's more about just doing the right things and as, an, as one, of the, one of the consequences of doing the right things is that your sleep will then become better. Uh, you know, you remind me of something one of my kids said once. We were 
learning meditation at home and they say, I'm going to do the best meditation ever. I'm going, <laughs> no, not with that attitude. <laughs> oh, thank you for that. Oh, look, you know, I think that sleep restore recovery, we've been hearing a lot about that. And I know, Emma, we talked earlier and you were mentioning the importance of convalescing. And it's again, it's something that we don't talk about that much anymore. Um, is this something you talk to your patients about? Yeah, I call it the forgotten art of convalescing. And look, it's really about surrendering to being still, to letting go of that need to be busy and to really take the time to nourish the body with easily digested nutrient-dense foods, such as that global favourite, the chicken soup. Mm -hmm. And and what I've noticed clinically is that if people convalesce properly, they have a much more efficient recovery and they have less chance of relapsing down the track. And I highly encourage it in my patient demographic, but people find it challenging to be able to stop and give themselves permission. So as a clinician, you know, often I will say to them, I give you permission to do nothing for four days. And it, you've really got to be quite firm with patients sometimes on this front. Mm. Now, I'd imagine that's quite hard for a lot of people. It would be very unnatural. Mm. Exactly. That's right. They're so busy doing um, that being still can be challenging. Mm. And Michelle, is this something you talk to your patients about? And how did they, how did they respond if you did? Yeah, I actually do talk a lot about convalescing because I I agree with Emma wholeheartedly. It is a forgotten art. And I think, you know, in many ways it, it actually is quite natural for us. Like if we can learn to read the body, so it's really important. So when the body does get sick or even um, mentally unwell, Adrian will probably know about this, like we actually have a a sickness effect of the body. So that inflammatory response that we do get when we're unwell is actually meant to help the body to rest and to not feel like doing anything and to feel sick and apathetic and unmotivated. So it's really important to remind patients that that's actually quite a normal process of being sick. So that that kind of helps them give themselves permission, like Em said, because they do require, you know, a lot of patients are so familiar with being busy. But, you know, in many ways, it's an unfamiliar sense to, to rest. Like we have this internal pressure in ourselves and also from the society that we live in. And I think, you know, really as a, as a culture, we really need to look at the ways in which we respect convalescence and respect rest. And I think in other cultures, like in Italy and in Finland, they actually have words that express, I don't know the words, but it's like the joy of doing nothing, you know. Um, I think as a culture here in Australia, we could actually do with a little bit of the joy of doing nothing, mm. you know, and I know um, FOMO is a, a massive thing for lots of people, but there's a new way of expressing that, which is JOMO, which is the joy of missing out. And so really celebrating <laughs> the fact that we're missing out on something vital and just lying and watching the clouds go by can be really important. But the other thing that I'd really like to say is expectation as well. So, um, you know, as we were talking about sometimes with viral infections, you can get a, a post-viral fatigue issue. Mm. And we don't, you know, we suspect a lot of the mechanisms, but I'm not sure we're really we've got a body of evidence that says this is exactly the people at risk of, of something like a post-viral fatigue syndrome. And so we have to be really careful for patients that experience that because expectation is really important. And so pneumonia is another classic example. I'll often see pneumonia in clinical practice. And I, um, from what I witness, it takes months to fully get that vitality back after a significant pneumonia. And that allows people to actually give themselves a break and not push themselves so hard. So their expectation is in line with um, the way that their body's healing from an innate perspective. And I think that does wonders for them to just sit with that sickness mentality or that innate sickness mentality to help them to heal long term. So I think mm. convalescence is, a yes, definitely a forgotten art and one that needs to come back quick, yeah. <laughs> quickly. <laughs> well, well, I was going to ask you about one of the things you were talking about was um, that tiredness that comes when, you you know, you're fighting an infection. So mm. there's that fatigue and, and I guess the way you've put it is 
that some fatigue is actually really helpful and we should embrace it and just recognise it's our body saying slow down, just let it do what it needs to do and don't do anything else. But I guess we're hearing a lot about ongoing fatigue, like you said, a post-viral syndrome where it's just lasting beyond where we believe it should be. Yeah. Um, and, and then it becomes a problem. Well, it does become a problem, A, because we, we don't know how to convalesce effectively. And also it just leads to a whole different way of building up the body. So, for example, if people have been under chronic stress and then get a significant viral infection, are they at more risk potentially? You know, if they're nutritionally deplete, you know, if, um, if they've got poor sleep, you know, as Adrian was talking about, and they have challenges in mounting that immune response, if they've got depression, you know, or significant sympathetic overdrive or um, an inability to engage in that parasympathetic nervous system, they're pro- possibly more likely to suffer from the effects of fatigue. So this kind of brings in that whole aspect of looking at patients from that holistic perspective and for patients to look at themselves or all the different areas in their life that potentially might be creating um, the risk factor for more prolonged fatigue. And I mm. think for in our, in our society, we sort of, you know, we have a society that reveres stress, you know. We revere the people that can sleep, you know, four to six hours and get up and, mm. and keep going in the morning, the ones that are doing triathlons on, on the weekend and, um, you know, getting their nutrients from from super shakes or et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, we all know that kind of drive in our community for for striving and more and more and more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that sometimes some of our stresses are actually quite hidden. You know, there's a lot of stressed people that actually don't even know that they're stressed, you know, and that's an important revelation for some people that might be having a post-viral fatigue issue to to really um, look at themselves at a, from a holistic perspective. And, I mean, one of my favourites, you know, my the forefather of Western medicine, Hippocrates, said, you know, disease is either a, a matter of time, you know, letting um, time and the innate immunity, you know, get you through a an illness or it's a matter of opportunity. And I think for that post-viral fatigue, sometimes it can act as an opportunity for people to look at themselves holistically and assess their lifestyle and and we have this opportunity to rebuild them nutritionally and emotionally, psychologically, um, and from a from a more wholesome lifestyle perspective. And that can then equate to a longer experience of, of health and vitality, hopefully, in the future. Mm. Look, I'm going to start wrapping up. Um, it's been just wonderful talking to all of you again. And I'm going to go around the room and ask each of you, what are your top, say, three, maximum five things that you'd recommend to people to support them to fight the good fight, fire up their immune system in the right way, uh, and also help them with recovery. So I'm going to start with Damien. Damien, what were your top tips? Oh, I feel like I'm like Stephen Bradbury here. He's like sliding through with all the wisdom <laughs> just in and I'm going to come through as the winner. But I, uh, I, I take vitamin C and zinc every day um, and I can't go past it. I love it. I think it's fantastic. I love to get outside in the middle of the day and have a little walk. So that's the sort of thing for me that obviously I've given that as advice and I do it as well. You know, it's really important for me to help maintain my health and well-being to, you know, just get a little stroll in there and, uh, and also keep my vitamin C and zinc levels up. But I love also at the end of the day after a big day of adjusting where I'm hunched over, you know. So if I'm hunched over, I'm in that fight or flight posture. You know, I'm in that, that posture where my shoulders are forward, I'm hyperventilating, I'm not actually breathing well. To actually lie on a bolster or on my posture pole, is what I, we've got a posture pole, um, I will lie on that and stretch out my chest and try to flatten my thoracic spine to just open everything up to take me out of that fight or flight kind of posture and um, and and that kind of practice, those three things for me, they're pretty much non-negotiables and that's what I do on a daily basis. So I'd recommend that to anybody. Mm, and they sound pretty easy to do as well. Not hard. Not no. hard. Pretty no. <laughs> and Adrian, your, your top tips. Yeah, uh, before I get into that, I've got an opportunity to uh, show off my really poor Italian skills. So the joy <laughs> of doing nothing is il dolce fare niente. So uh, the joy of doing nothing. Um, (laughs) 
sounds good to me. <laughs> All right. So in terms of my uh, tips, I mean, I think one of the things is certainly around uh, engaging in positive activities and we know that that is associated with improved immune health. And uh, and interestingly, there's, there's actually a study, the term was coined emo diversity and that's really around having a whole range of different positive emotions you know it's emotions like joy and happiness and 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 what the research showed is that the more emo diversity that you had the better uh, the inflammatory or the, the, the greater the impact on, on anti-inflammatory mediators. So, uh, so for people to really think about not just positive experiences and feeling good, but if they can kind of increase the diversity of experiences uh, by engaging in a whole range of different topics and, and, and activities and around people, uh, that's going to have a really uh, positive effect on their overall health. And the other thing um, really, I suppose it's just more a recommendation for practitioners is we know that how we see the world and um, and how we see our health is going to have a really positive or negative effect on our mental health and our physical health. And there's lots of research showing that uh, people with greater optimism, well, some research, sorry, not a lot, but there's some research showing that people who are, have greater optimism have uh, reduced levels of inflammation. So as practitioners, I think it's really important for us to increase the sense of optimism in our clients to show them that they really are effective lifestyle, psychological, dietary, nutraceutical, phytoceutical options to help normalise inflammation. And if we can provide some sensible information, um, showing them that there's a whole range of things that they can do to restore themselves to to better health, uh, and that's through us developing a really trusting relationship for us to give them sound and reliable information, I think that's really important for us as practitioners. And I think it goes back to what you were talking about earlier, the locus of control. It gives people something they can control as well. Yeah, definitely. So if if we can do that and we can and people walk out going, actually there's things I can do to improve my well-being, uh, they're going to certainly be far better equipped. And, and one of the things in a lot of the research we see is that the placebo effect is just astounding. And, and, if we, and that placebo effect is often around expectations and, and belief and hope. And, uh, and if we as practitioners, practitioners can do that and instil hope in our clients, it's going to be really helpful. Uh, Michelle. So oh, what are your top tips? So hard, Leslie. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I agree with everything Damien said and everything Adrian's just said. Um, but if I, if, if I was going to add anything, I mean, I think looking at um, the person as a whole, looking at yourself as a whole um, is really important and, and managing stress, you know, whether it's internal stress such as, you know, from a poor diet, from poor nutrition, from gut dysbiosis or poor gut health, to you know, and and also things like you know, are we living a life that um, is according to our values? Is it aligned with what we want? You know, um, is all really important for internal stress and then external stress. You know, are we doing too much? You know, are we working too hard? Have we given up our leisure time? These are all the factors that can help us to really come into ourselves and and get a sense of vitality that no one can really take from us. And then adding in, I mean, nutritional medicine is really, um, has been such a, I guess, a frontier for me, you know, it's it's really important to my practice is is looking at those key nutrients, as you mentioned, your vitamin C, vitamin A, vitamin um, D and zinc are all such profound micronutrients and vitamins for the immune system, but they also, you know, have aspects in terms of anti-inflammatory, antioxidants. It's like this global effect that they work synergistically with each other. So, and the other thing is, is exercise, getting out into nature. Uh, I think, you know, we are natural beings, you know, nature is where we probably, you know, most of us feel most alive, you know, Um, and we have become more solitary through lockdowns, more isolated, um, trapped in our homes for some people. So getting out in nature is such a fantastic healing modality on so many different levels. So I mm. think um, it's really, really important that we have a great relationship and it can teach us so much in such a subtle way. And the mm. other lovely, you know, um, thing that I always say to my patients is everything in moderation, you know, even moderation itself. So um, having that real <laughs> balance, you know, um, 
and and testing our boundaries from time to time. And Emma, is there anything left to say? I'm sure you've got something to add. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's always more to say, isn't there? Mm. Look, I think um, the consistency of small actions really pays off in the long run. What I see is so many people go too hard, too fast with health changes, and then they find it all so overwhelming that nothing is maintained. So just focusing on some small strategic things like maybe ensuring you have a nutrient-dense lunch on a daily basis, maybe making sure you're hydrating well or sleeping well, you know, but making small actions is always my number one tip for anyone that wants to make health changes and definitely seeking the advice of a qualified health professional because health is too important to guess. And I know a lot of clinicians will be listening to this podcast and they too need to ensure that they are seeing a health professional uh, for guidance and for help and support along the way. And the last one is to think, you know, how do I eat the rainbow on a daily basis. So taking it back to that very granular level of food as medicine, thinking what is one small item that I can add to my meal to increase the nutrient density. And it could be something as simple as, you know, chopping a tiny bit of parsley on your eggs in the morning or or throwing some toasted seeds on your salad or even just adding one extra vegetable into your dinner. But there's always one item that you could easily add to a meal to upregulate that nutrient density. So small, regular, consistent changes is what I'm always focusing on. Mm, Thank you, Emma. Um, I know there's been a lot of research showing that if you just make a small little change but you keep it consistently going, it has a huge impact. Mm. Yeah, so important. Absolutely. Look, I just want to say a very big thank you to Damien and Michelle, Adrian and Emma. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about immunity in a viral world where we are today. There's so much we can do. And um, I'm really hoping that the clinicians who've been listening to us are going to go away with some renewed energy and a couple of tips and maybe some new ways of talking about things with their patients as well. So thank you very much, everyone. Don't forget, you can find all the show notes, transcripts and much more at the FX Medicine website. I'm Professor Leslie Braun. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment.